It's FFJ here as part of our sex issue and an interesting twist. This is an in-house interview. I'm going to talk to Zoe about her master's thesis research on Bunabits, otherwise known as coffee houses in Ethiopia, and the links between serving coffee, feminization, and the sexualization of feminized labor. Zoe's research went on to be published in the journal Gender and Research, and it was one of the first things she had going on when we met. I remember at the time thinking, wow, she's so smart. And she totally is, so I'm very excited to be talking to her today. We spend so much time talking to other people that it's super exciting to be here, just the two of us. I was thinking that the last time and the only other time that I interviewed Zoe was actually for a job. And without that interview, there would be no FFJ. So let's hope this discussion is similarly fruitful, but also bear with us and for a little bit awkward. Great, so hi Zoe, I'm excited to have you here. Hi Isabella, <laughs> thanks for the kind introduction. Very sweet. I think it would be great to start off just talking about your research in broad terms. So maybe you can tell us a bit what it was about. I understood that you initially traveled to Ethiopia to cover a different topic than you ended up researching. So maybe you can give us an overview of your final research topic and how you ended up getting there. Yeah, for sure. So the long version, I suppose, is that I did I did my undergrad in the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at UBC and was really interested in urban food systems and specifically in South Asia, just because it was a part of the world that I had spent some time in. And so my intention when I went to the master's program was to do research in a similar bent, but I just didn't find the perfect topic supervisor combo. So I ended up getting involved with this bigger research project called REACH that was looking at water access in small cities in Ethiopia. And somehow the way the research was described, I was like, okay, actually, I think I could maybe make this work um, because it was this urban piece, which I was quite interested in. Um, and then talking about water systems rather than food systems, which I thought maybe there's some crossovers there and an opportunity to learn something new, I guess, moving away from just pure food systems work. So I went to Mukro, which is a small city in the north, in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, to this small city, hired a, an amazing interpreter who I worked with. Uh, and started, yeah, just walking around, knocking on doors, trying to figure out what people in different parts of the city's experiences of the new water system were. And it ended up not being all that interesting because people were much more concerned with um, other challenges they were facing in their lives and not so much with water access. My interpreter actually lived in a nearby city, and so she was only there when we were conducting research. And so I found myself with a lot of time and, and wanting to not just sit in my hotel room, but but to really get out and get a more of a feel for this place that that was very new to me. And so I ended up spending a lot of time in these Bunabets and um, in doing so, had the opportunity to observe them as really interesting spaces, always run by women, always run by young women. From there, the research, the research really changed shape and I ended up focusing my work on Bunabets, looking at Bunabets as an example of an entrepreneurial pursuit that young women engage in. Um, and the ways in which this opens up new opportunities in the way that, that you would imagine an entrepreneurial pursuit might, might do. But then in other ways also, because this work is so gendered, it also opens them up to different types of vulnerabilities. And so trying to complicate a little bit these narratives around empowerment being a purely good and purely kind of progressive thing. Sorry, that was a very long-winded <laughs> explanation. 
No, that was great. And we can unpack sort of the more of the content and the, the findings of your research um, later on. And I just wanted to touch maybe first on the methodologies that you used, because mm -hmm. I know that your research made use of feminist epistemologies and feminist methodologies, like mm -hmm. life her story methods. Um, and I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about your decision to make use of these methods and how you came to feel they were the right fit for the project. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's always difficult, especially as someone coming from the outside with all of your own value judgments and ideas about a place or about a situation. I mean, there's no way to remove yourself from that, I guess. And because I was a woman and, and a young woman and because the people I was interviewing were young women, I feel I had this very interesting opportunity to kind of see eye to eye with them in a way. I mean, of course, not totally eye to eye because I'm coming from this like elite institution from the outside coming in and, um, and, and asking them questions about their lives. But I really wanted as much as possible to, to tell their stories in their own terms and to really do my best to approach them as like reliable narrators and as people who know better than anyone the realities of their own lives. And so this, this idea of, of life history methods, so trying to understand also them as whole people with these complicated life stories and not just women who are entrepreneurs who are living in this quote unquote developing country and at the forefront of its economic development and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was a way of connecting with women um, meaningfully in the way that I would want to connect with with other young women anywhere, um, not only if I'm doing research on them, but also just to understand them as people, as whole people and as people with whose lives are or whose lives and stories are worth telling and and can teach us something about what's going on in a specific part of the world somewhere. Something that I found really excellent about that article was your sort of constant reflection on your own positionality as a researcher and the power that you have as a researcher. And I think that's something that's not as present in social science as it should be. Um, a concept that we probe at in multiple pieces of a sex issue is this idea of performance. And you touch mm -hmm. on that in your article, and I think also in your reply just now on sort of your the act of conducting research as sort of a performance about mm -hmm. academia and the fact that your performance then in some ways elicits its own performance from your subjects. Mm -hmm. um, I think you kind of already answered this question though. I was going to ask you about like reconciling sort of the tensions that you might have experienced in the field. Yeah, I mean, I can maybe just say a little bit more about that. Well, I felt as someone who also, I think, suffers as <laughs> many other young women do from um, imposter syndrome this idea that I was like some mm -hmm. random you know Canadian woman coming from this as I said already like really elite institution and dropping into this place that I really didn't know very much about and being expected to somehow come away with something meaningful and novel to say about the lives of people I mean it, I think it always it does feel really extractive and does feel um just very strange to then be like taking these stories away and putting them in into context with all of this this theoretical work that other people at other <laughs> institutions um largely coming from wealthier parts of the world are doing so I think yeah. I was hyper aware of that and one thing that I really liked about doing research in Bunabet specifically was that it allowed me to just take part I mean I, I think 
anthropologists anywhere would, would talk about this probably more eloquently than me, but yeah, to be able to actually just take part in a culture and a cultural experience and to engage with it, it felt very different than like imposing myself on someone in their home or um, in their place of work or um, demanding their attention at times when they maybe needed that attention for other things. And not to say that, of course, like I, there, I'm sure there was a level of imposition as well when I'm sitting at someone's bunabet, but the bunabet is a place for socialization. And so sitting there and socializing with the women who run it, like felt meaningful on both sides, I hope, at least to a certain degree. And then, yeah, again, I, as I said before, I think there was something unique about being a young woman and also my interpreter was a young woman. And so having this, this opportunity to engage on, on that level with some element of shared identity. I want to keep going on this, this thread of talking about performance because another way that this comes up in your research is through the performance of women who serve coffee at the Bunabets. Um, and I was wondering if you could take us maybe there a little bit and describe the process of producing the coffee and the ambiance around it and then tell us also about the ways that this performance is highly gendered in those spaces. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I think anyone who's been to Ethiopia has probably seen this coffee ceremony. Um, you visit someone's home, they're going to definitely make you coffee and, and we'll, we'll prepare it in this in the same ceremonial manner. And being able to do this ceremony well is a symbol of your quality as a wife and as a woman, because I think it's also linked to this culture of hospitality. Yeah, welcoming people in, and working hard and sharing food. Um, and this is this is this labor is very much falls on the shoulders of women. In Bunavets, it also falls on the shoulders of women, but in a more business context. I think that makes sense. And we see it's not obviously unique to Ethiopia, we see similar dynamics between the performances around food, of course, being gendered the world mm -hmm. over. Um, and I also gathered from your academic article, which of course we'll drop in the show notes and add to further readings, that the preparation of coffee is not the only performance that's expected from women in these mm. you know, bed spaces. Um, and I was also wondering if you could tell us more about the different types of performances that are tangential to the coffee. Like linked to what I said about, about hospitality and warmth, there is an expectation that women are like kind of taking care of their clientele. I mean, and you see this, I guess, in all kinds of serving jobs all, all over the world that, that, you know, a good server should make you feel at home, should make sure you are waited upon and catered to in all of these different ways. But there's a few things in the context of Bunabets that, that makes it more fraught. First of all, that it's, you know, exclusively young women almost always running their own business or working for another young woman together but most often it's in the space of their own home so they'll rent a room and there'll be maybe like a curtain in the middle or something like that and then they're serving coffee on one side and sleeping on the other side and so this also changes the dynamic it's not necessarily a professional space it is still someone's home so it's sort of domestic but it's also a place of business and so they're they're selling something and then this element of like selling something of course then creates expectations on those women that that because they're being paid they are there then therefore expected to do as the customer wants and then relatedly i guess bunabets also historically were linked to sex work and places where men who were in need of a warm drink or a meal might go and then also pay for sex from the women working there and 
from at least in Wukro, from the experiences that I had, I didn't hear anybody saying, there was one woman that I met that did engage in sex work, but none of the other women did, although they were constantly being propositioned and constantly being asked. And, and also I think people were playing with the limits of that because these are young unmarried women, you're sitting in their home being served by them. Um, and, and the women were very aware of these dynamics and very aware of the ways in which their own flirtation and the way that they dressed and the way that they engaged with men in those spaces was directly linked to their success as businesswomen. And so I remember there was one woman in particular who had a daughter and she remembers like overhearing her daughter speaking to a friend of hers about the way that she saw her mom engaging with men and how ashamed she felt of that. And yet that she felt she had to do that because again, it was pivotal to the success of her business that she wear maybe a shorter skirt than would be acceptable in other spaces in the town or in other circumstances and that she sit with men and make them feel welcome. So they stay and they drink coffee and they drink beer and drink whatever else she's serving. And often they also serve food, food and that kind of thing. I think in some ways, because this process of making coffee is so strongly feminized, it then creates the expectation that they perform in these other ways that maybe might be more intimate. Mm. And it's so interesting also to read in your work that sort of that performance that has like sort of material implications for those women in terms of different milestones in their lives, because of course, well, not of course, actually, it's actually quite interesting that only unmarried women mm. can run a bunabet because it's not considered to be an appropriate job for a married woman for the reasons that the aforementioned reasons that you just talked about in the sense that there are certain things that are expected of them by men and they're sort of expected to constantly either parry those advances or laugh it off and it wouldn't be a job that someone's wife would be involved in. Great, so you've sort of gone over the implications of being in a position of servitude and the way that this is sexualized. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why being in a position of servitude that is serving coffee lends itself to women experiencing this type of sexualization by their clientele. Yeah, I mean, I think there is something to be said for the way that reinforcing gender roles or playing the part of different genders then reinforces certain elements of different gender roles. And I think, again, this is something that's come up in a few of the pieces in this sex issue. So be sure to check those out for anyone listening. <laughs> but, uh, shameless plug. It's probably more in the minds of the clientele than it is in the minds of the women, but there's this like specific image of, of what a perfect woman does. And part of it is is serving coffee. And another thing that a perfect woman does is laughs at your jokes and also is receptive to your sexual advances and like she's a sex object in some ways I guess I think this is true in like so many different contexts it's not not unique to Ethiopia I guess is what I'm trying to say in Ethiopia I think we also have to talk about the fact that like the economic situation in Ethiopia at least when I was there it was huge unemployment problem a lot of especially young people unemployed so maybe not with like enough to do spending a lot of time sitting around drinking coffee in Bunabets and maybe wanting more from life, wanting a wife, wanting a job, wanting all of these things. And sex is a part of that. Um, and so there is something about this image of this like perfect woman. And of course, women are, the women in the Bunabets are performing that in a specific way because it's their job, not because they necessarily like ascribe to that image of 
of a perfect woman or aspire to that, but realize that that's what their job is about. And so I think we see this playing out in, in so many different contexts, not only in, in Ethiopia, but, but in Ethiopia, this is the one that I observed, I guess. Mm. I got really into like obsessively reading reviews of Don't Worry Darling, you know, this new film by Olivia Wilde with Florence Pugh and Harry Styles. I will not go see it because it's apparently terrible and I already read all those spoilers. Um, and actually, I just like I was about to now give a spoiler and talk about the plot of this movie and the way that even relates to your research. So maybe I won't. <laughs> <laughs> so that entire thought train is now dead in case some people listening to this might go see Don't Worry Darling. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of the same, I guess, like idea of like you, everyone's perfect woman. I mean, it's a very tired old trope. I don't think there's anything particularly novel or inspiring actually about this movie. Um, which is one of the reasons it was sort of critically panned. The other being other drama that happened around the movie that is like otherwise problematic, but there's no point in talking about that now because it will make obvious how much. I'm um, so curious now. <laughs> <laughs> but all of this to say that it just is a very old trope of this sort of like perfect yeah. woman who is both a server of food and a server of sexual favors and an object to do whatever you please with that you can see in context as diverse as Buna Betts all the way to sort of Hollywood pseudo satires. Mm. Um, great. Okay. All that to say, we should talk about something else. Why don't we move on? I think the point you made about actually like the, the employment rate in Ethiopia is really interesting because a lot of your academic work at your thesis focuses also on the way that entrepreneurship is being promoted in Ethiopia as a means for young people to escape poverty and develop the country so to speak. Um, and maybe we can touch a little bit about that, that sort of entrepreneurship is seen as a viable path to development and a, bio, a viable path to lifting people out of poverty. Um, yet at the same time, for women who are running these budapets, which is a form of entrepreneurship that often puts them in positions that are vulnerable. And I was wondering if you could talk about sort of in more detail how these links appear to be being overlooked in the Ethiopian context and to whose detriment these oversights are. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think there's a few things going on. I mean, I think practically speaking, Budabets are like the lowest barrier kind of business that a young woman can start because it, all you need, like, as I said, most women are running them out of their, the rooms that they're renting. So their homes, so they're, they're already paying that rent. I mean, maybe they would be renting a slightly bigger room than if they weren't running a Bunabet. Buying, you know, one bag of coffee, they have all of the other materials for the most part, maybe they'll buy a few stools or something, but it's, it's very much marginal it's not a, really a very good springboard into something better. Although many, many women dream of it being a springboard into something better, you're not making a huge amount of money. And as you say, it, it, it is also kind of dangerous work in some ways. I mean, I think entrepreneurship is a really important, is a really important element of Ethiopia's development program, partially because of this youth unemployment problem. But when we talk about youth in um, the Ethiopian context, context and also many other African contexts. And there's like a huge amount of literature on, on like youth in Africa. I'm doing air quotes. I know people can't see <laughs> because it's a podcast, but- um, They're very but air quotey. It's, it's mostly, yeah, they're very air quotey, exactly. They're mostly conceptualized as, as, a, as a male category. Um, and I think it has to do with the fact that women's like 
life path very often doesn't doesn't have as long or as important a kind of youth category because women are are young women and then they're married and then they're um, then they're mothers or adults and they don't really have this kind of long drawn out youth which in many contexts where especially young men don't have employment they they have this really long drawn out youth period because they can't make this next step because they don't have a job. Um, but we're seeing that change obviously as people are also like getting married later and and also engaging in in different types of employment than maybe they would in the past. I think I mean I think fundamentally the problem is like a we need to think about the types of jobs and the types of work that are accessible to women and how can we widen the scope of that possibility and it's not just about giving women startup capital but also giving women the kinds of supports and education that they need in order to do that meaningfully and successfully and then secondly that we need to put women actually at the center of policymaking processes and again trust them as the most reliable narrators of their lives and make sure that we are asking women themselves in all of the contexts in which you're implementing these programs, like what it is that they want and what it is that they need and what it is that they aspire to do and to be and, and not just make sweeping assumptions about what entrepreneurship should look like and what progress and development looks like. Great. I think those are all my questions for you today. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Isabella. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone who's interested in reading more, I recommend reading the full um, academic article, which is shorter than the master's thesis version of Zoe's thesis. And otherwise, we hope you read our whole sex issue and that you really like it. And let us know in the comments what you think. <laughs>